Republican Herschel Walker says he's getting ready to debate Senator Raphael Warnock. Oh, I got a lot of coaches. Yeah, I, hey, I got, hey, I got debate coaches. I got, and, hey, I got a lot of debate coaches. I think that's one of the things that I do. But he's not agreed to any of the three debate invitations Warnock has already accepted. Instead, Walker keeps talking about more negotiations. And I said, I'm ready to debate him. You get the dates. We're going to make it fair. It's not about the, the press or not about anyone else but the people. And when you're ready to debate, we can debate. Walker was a no-show for every debate during the Republican primary. It didn't matter. He easily won the nomination. But Warnock is targeting Walker's debate evasiveness in his newest ad. Raphael Warnock has accepted three invitations to debate his opponent, Herschel Walker. Yet Herschel Walker still refuses to agree to any debates. Do you have an intention of dodging debates? Oh, no, I don't dodge anything. I've never dodged How will the debate over debates end? I'm Sam Greenglass, politics reporter for WABE. I'm Emma Hurt, reporter with Axios Atlanta. I'm Susanna Capaluto, politics editor at WABE. Rahul Bali is on assignment, and this is Georgia Votes 2022, a campaign podcast from WABE. I vote because it's a privilege. I vote a because I want to make an impact. I vote my because I want leaders who care about Voting my future. is the gift of so freedom. So voting matters to me because I believe there is value in my voice. Emma and Sam, the obvious question to you, why is Herschel Walker not committing to debates? You know, it has been a big question and it's been something that Senator Warnock has been able to make a story for months now. During the primary, as we said, Walker's argument was, why would I debate someone? I'm so far ahead in the polls. But he doesn't have that argument right now because an average of all polls, public and private, are showing a really tight race here, a statistical tie. And, you know, in talking to political scientists about debates, there's always the question, do they matter? And uh, what I've heard is that generally they don't matter if you've already made up your mind. But for the persuadable people in the middle, they can really make a difference. And given that this race is in such a dead heat, those persuadable people are who you really need. And also, let's remember that Walker has not yet been tested on a national debate stage, unlike Warnock, who, if you remember in 2020, uh, debated his Republican opponent, Kelly Leffler. One of them was nationally televised. Uh, Leffler was on message, but some critics said she was a bit robotic, whereas Warnock is a reverend. He has honed his speaking ability at the pulpit over many years. Plus, now he has served in the U.S. Senate and has a much more intimate knowledge of the policymaking process. Walker, on the other hand, is prone not only to gaffes, but sometimes dizzyingly confusing answers about policy from climate change to guns. And for the last few weeks, Walker has been kept mostly to scripted moments as his campaign rejiggers. Now, the Atlanta Press Club issued a statement saying it has set the date of October 16th for the Senate debate. And they did so because it coincides with the start of early voting and it keeps the Senate calendar in mind. So do you think Walker can just say, oops, sorry, I have another commitment? And also, I need to put just a note of disclosure in here. Our co-host, Raul Bali, is the co-chair of the Atlanta Press Club Debate Committee. He is at a conference this week, but he said that he's actually still hopeful that Walker will agree to the Atlanta Press Club debate. And, you know, in that spirit of disclosure, I'm on that debate committee that Raul uh, co-chairs. But 
you know, it, I don't think that the scheduling argument makes much sense because you have Senator Warnock, who's a sitting senator, committing to the three debates already, including one that hasn't even been scheduled yet. He said, I'm going to be there no matter where it is. Um, there's a lot of time. And, and we do have some precedent in Georgia politics for this. I mean, it's it's not a new strategy anywhere, right? But in recent memory, um, Senator Perdue refused to show up for his runoff debate with now Senator John Ossoff, who ended up defeating him. And, you know, that's not the only reason why he lost by any means, but it, it was a powerful image and something that Senator Ossoff used really effectively. And Senator Warnock could certainly do the same. And he is doing that right now by making it a story at this point. Now, Emma, you already mentioned some polling, but we have a latest uh, Atlanta Journal-Constitution poll out. It shows an interesting dynamic of split voters in Georgia. Is our electorate more gray than just red and blue? Yeah, and you know, before we go into this, just important to note, both these top two races are governor's race between Governor Kemp and Stacey Abrams and the Senate race are really tight. I mean, within the margin, if you take into account the margin of error of these polls, it's very close. But we do see... Governor Kemp maintaining a slight lead over Abrams in an average of polling. And we see Senator Warnock with a smaller edge over Walker, but really still close. And that does indicate that there could be split voters in Georgia. And we do know that that has happened before. In the runoffs, there were about 20,000 people who voted for Senator Perdue, a Republican, and for Senator Warnock, a Democrat. So there is precedent. There are these people in Georgia politics. And when things are so tight, you know, those people can certainly make a difference. One other thing I want to mention from this recent poll is that it found President Joe Biden is way underwater in terms of his approval rating in Georgia. Um, But some Democrats are hoping at least a little bit that the tide might turn soon uh, as gas prices begin to fall a bit. And now it appears that Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senator Joe Manchin have reached a deal on something that they're calling the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, It would raise corporate taxes, cut the cost of prescription drugs, invest in energy production and climate change programs, and also pay down the deficit. So this might be something that's helpful to show that, one, Democrats are doing something about inflation, an issue that Republicans have hit them on the head over and over about, and also demonstrate to more progressive voters that Democrats are using their majorities to take historic action on climate change. And Sam, what you're talking about with the national climate is a lot different than what we saw four years ago during the first matchup between now Governor Kemp and Stacey Abrams. Emma, you covered that first gubernatorial matchup. It was decided by like 55,000 votes, taking new census data into account, showing Georgia has grown more diverse and younger in the past four years. One would think that would benefit Democrats, but the polling data isn't showing that. You have a story out on the difference between now and 2018. What did you find? Yeah, you're right, Susanna. We covered that together four years ago. It was a ride. Um, (laughs) And I think, you know, based on the math, based on the Democratic assumptions about how Georgia's population has shifted and changed, based on Joe Biden's win in Georgia, our two Democratic senators' wins in Georgia, you would think that four years later, Abrams might be in the lead in this race. But what we're seeing is a whole slew of things that have shifted. Number one, Kemp is an incumbent. He's had four years. He he led the state through a pandemic. He was among the first in the country to reopen the state's economy. 
that garnered him a lot of criticism, but it also garnered him support from small business owners in the state. He refused Trump's effort to overturn the 2020 election. That's a different dynamic because in 2018, remember, he was a Trump-endorsed candidate through and through. And on Abrams's side, you know, she's had four years of being in the national spotlight, but not being in office. And that makes it much harder um, to campaign because four years ago, she was coming off a ride as minority leader in the Georgia House with a lot of immediate policy wins that she could talk about. And right now she's been she's been out of office. And that national climate is the other big thing that's shifted. In 2018, President Trump was in office. It was a harder year for Republicans then. This year, as we've discussed, it's much harder for Democrats. And the big question is, can Abrams differentiate herself? The Abrams campaign is still really confident that they can overcome this national climate. And part of the way they think they can do it is by reminding people that, in fact, Kemp's policy agenda has been pretty conservative, very conservative, in fact, passing the abortion ban we've talked about and constitutional carry. Well, everybody go read Emma's story. Um, This is a good time to take a break. When we come back, we'll get you up to date on Georgia's new abortion law implementation and lawsuits. I'm Susanna Capaluto, and this is Georgia Votes 2022. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen at wabe.org or wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome back to Georgia Votes 2022. Today with Emma Hurd and Sam Greenglass. Sam, bring us up to date on where Georgia's controversial six-week abortion ban stands. Well, remember last week, a federal appeals court panel ruled the entirety of the law could take effect immediately. So in Georgia, abortion is now banned after about six weeks with exceptions for rape and incest with the police report and also for the life of the mother. This week, though, the ACLU filed a lawsuit in Fulton County Superior Court uh, challenging the law under Georgia's state constitution. Uh, Some legal experts say that Georgia's state constitution has the stronger privacy provisions more so than the U.S. Constitution, and those might prohibit this law. Also this week, we learned that parts of a federal case could still be in play, too. Groups are preparing to challenge how part of the law that says, quote, an unborn child is a natural person, how that affects other statutes in Georgia law. So there might be more cases to be brought as it pertains to that provision. Now, I have found this week that our state agencies were utterly unprepared to implement the personhood provision in the law. Emails we've sent to state agencies all came back with notes of, quote, we're working on it and we'll let you know. You would think that the state had two years to get ready for embryos and fetuses to be treated as people. And it's interesting that no agency so far was prepared. Yeah, so let me just play you a cut of tape from Elizabeth Nash. She's a state policy analyst at the Guttmacher Institute. 
it was very clear that abortion was at the center of these initiatives and the rest of the issues that the state would then have to contend with, all of that was sort of collateral issues. Only two other states besides Georgia have actually passed a personhood provision into law. Uh, Arizona did it in 2021. A federal court has now blocked it. Uh, Alabama added the language to their state constitution in 2018, but it hasn't really been tested yet. So actually, Georgia will be kind of the first place where we see all of the implications and perhaps unintended consequences of this part of the law playing out in real life. And, you know, this was part of the tactic in 2019 when this law passed. Ed Setzler, the state representative who was the bill's sponsor, told us then that the personhood part of the law was added for this reason. Here's what he said back then. We were actually following the Roe versus Wade opinion in the written opinion itself. It says if a state ever establishes the personhood of the unborn child, the logic of the Roe case collapses. But still, because these personhood provisions have been um, legally controversial in some other states. Some have struck them down. Perhaps that's why we're seeing some ambiguity now in terms of the implementation. But the personhood provision was really a fascinating thing to watch in 2019 because you saw Democrats and opponents to the bill poking holes in it saying, well, what are you going to do? Like give child support to fetuses and embryos? What are you going to do? Are, are they now citizens and can can they be deported if, if the the pregnant woman carrying them is an undocumented immigrant? And we did see some of that language appear in the bill, which says, yes, these unborn children now count in population counts. And yes, you can qualify for child support. But it does open this Pandora's box of questions, which has been the main criticism of this provision and what, as Sam said, you know, opponents are hoping to to overturn. And in the meantime, we keep asking how it will be implemented because it is in effect. And so is Georgia's voting law. It got some scrutiny this week from you, Sam. You dropped a big investigation on drop boxes. I couldn't help myself. I had to put that <laughs> in. In Georgia. <laughs> that you worked on with our GPB colleague, Stephen Fowler. I know you both worked really hard on it for many, many months, and you looked at what happened after Georgia's election law, SB 202, mandated one drop box in every county, but also limited the maximum number of one for every 100,000 voters, and mandated they be inside early voting locations and only during business hours. Well, first, let me just give you some top line findings. Uh, we found that more than half of the roughly 550,000 voters who cast their ballot using a drop box in the 2020 general election, they lived in just four counties, Cobb, Gwinnett, Fulton, and DeKalb. In those four counties, the number of drop boxes offered under the new law plummeted from 107 in 2020 to just 25 in 2022. A quarter of Georgia's voters saw their travel time to get to a drop box go up since the 2020 election. And more than 90% of those voters who saw their travel time go up, they live in cities and suburbs that vote heavily Democratic and are also home to most of the state's minority voters. What was your biggest surprise? Well, we wanted to do this investigation because there's just so much rhetoric about the effects of this election law, from Democrats who call it Jim Crow 2.0 to Republicans who say the law made it easy to vote and hard to cheat. The reality is actually 
a more complex picture than some of these political absolutes. Yes, this law probably is not disenfranchising millions of voters. You can still very much use a Dropbox in the state of Georgia. But when you're making it harder to vote in some fashion, it's really important to ask what is the reasoning behind doing that. And in this case, it seems to have been driven by Trump's false claims about voter fraud. And, you know, even if these changes aren't flipping election results, they do have consequences for individual voters. Uh, I met this one voter, Monica Poole, who's African-American, and she wanted to use a Dropbox due to having a broken ankle. And I feel like a lot of people put their lives at risk for us to be able to vote. So I just feel like that's my civic duty. But the Dropbox was too hard to get to uh, because it was now farther away from her house and only available during limited hours. So she just went ahead and stuck her absentee ballot in the mail. It arrived too late. It did not count. And that experience made her lose confidence in Georgia's voting system. And when the runoffs came around in June, uh, she didn't end up voting at all. And I just want to say, Sam, I thought this was really great reporting that y'all did because this Dropbox provision is something that Democrats and Republicans have both argued their positions on for years. And we just haven't had the data to know what actually happened. And now we do. So thank you. And, you know, the Dropboxes have kind of, you know, there were so many pieces that you could look at in this election law. But Dropboxes, like you said, have kind of become this symbol, this stand in for these broader debates about election integrity, about false claims about election fraud, about voting rights that have been happening in Georgia and around the country. So beyond the, you know, the nitty gritty implications on voters, on turnout, uh, it also kind of represents this broader debate that we've been having in this country over voting, especially since the 2020 election. Well, let's go to another fallout from the 2020 election, the Fulton County Special Grand Jury's investigation into former President Trump and his allies' efforts to overturn the election. Emma, catch us up on what we know about this investigation now. So the high level of what's going on with this investigation is it's it's been going on for more than a year, right? But basically, we're right in the thick of the prosecutors trying to talk to people who don't want to talk to them people that have been named as targets of the investigation, including the slate of false Republican electors who, quote, certified a Trump victory back in December 2020 when there was no Trump victory to be certified. But also people like Senator Lindsey Graham, um, Trump's former lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. These are people who have been subpoenaed but are fighting that testimony in different ways. And so we're seeing just a ton of court filings as those different proceedings work their way through court. The latest is that a federal judge ruled that Congressman Jody Heiss, who ran for Secretary of State in Georgia, has repeated many of these false claims of voter fraud, as we know, he must testify. However, he does have the right to push back on certain questions based on his own legislative privilege. And that's something we've seen at the state level as well for state lawmakers, that this is going to be complicated for them. They go into a grand jury and testify, but then there's a question they feel like they have grounds to push back on. They have to go out, talk to their lawyers, and then maybe has to go back before a judge. So we're really in the weeds of a complicated process that just shows how wide reaching this investigation has grown. And Sam, you've been actually working on a profile of District Attorney Fani Willis and the scope of this investigation. What have you learned? 
Well, there's one school of thinking that Fulton County may actually be the prime venue for prosecuting Trump or his allies, partly because of Georgia state law and the clarity of that January 2021 phone call between Trump and Secretary of State Raffensperger, but also because it's kind of more removed from Washington and some of the more the precedent that would be set by the Department of Justice indicting a former president during the administration of his successor. Uh, here's Norm Eisen with the Brookings Institution, who wrote a report on Georgia's case. She's not the appointee, nor does she work for the candidate who defeated Donald Trump, who was his adversary. She's not in D.C. She's not a part of the Biden administration. She has more distance. But we should also not be thinking about this investigation as some kind of slam dunk. Uh, A prosecution could take years. It could snarl the streets around the Fulton County Courthouse, eat up lots of resources in the district attorney's office, and it all would still come down to a jury that is not going to be all Democrats. Uh, Here's defense attorney Don Samuel, who I should note has been hired to represent the General Assembly in the proceedings. It is going to be an enormous expense for the county. It will overwhelm our courthouse. It will put to the back burner the homicides, the armed robberies, the sexual offenses, you know, all the crimes that need to be dealt with. And that they're years behind, years behind in prosecuting these cases. Some of the people who have been languishing in the Fulton County Jail for years waiting for a trial. Just a quick note of disclosure, Don Samuel is the father of WABE's environment editor, Molly Samuel. And just one other thing on this prosecution we're seeing play out is while it is removed from Washington, like it is not removed from politics. Fonnie Willis was elected. She's a Democrat and and she has um, ties. And notably, we saw a judge rule that she cannot. She has a conflict in directly investigating one of these false electors. Burt Jones, who's a state senator, because she headlined fundraisers for Jones's opponent in November. Jones is running for lieutenant governor against Charlie Bailey, who used to work with Bonnie Willis. And so this is still an investigation that is fraught with politics, albeit at a more local level. And before we go, I'd like to know what's ahead this week. It's almost too hot for politicking. And I know, Sam, you're taking a deserved vacation. But Emma, what will you be watching? I'm actually going to be taking a trip to South Georgia where it will be even hotter than in Atlanta, but there will be some some events that I'm uh, looking forward to seeing. And I always love a chance to go to Pretoria Fields Brewery in Albany. And I will be watching not politics, but the shores of Lake Michigan. But even though this is vacation, uh, I guess you cannot escape politics. Uh, Michigan's primary is on Tuesday. So the political circus, I guess, will follow me everywhere forever. (laughs) (laughs) That's it for this edition of Georgia Votes 2022. Please tell a friend to subscribe. Emma and Sam, thanks for your time. Anytime, Susanna. Thanks, Susanna. Georgia Votes 2022 is a production of the WABE politics team. You can email us at georgiavotes at wabe.org. Please check out our other podcasts, including Political Breakfast and WABE's TechCast. I'm Susanna Capaluto. See you next week. 